tells us how a young single man stuck to God's ways in the midst of a perverse world. And so we're going to really just un- unpack chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, over these next two Sunday nights. And what I'm going to try to do is just look at principles, fundamental principles for, for a life that pleases God, because that's what we're talking about. The end game ought to be, I am going to please God. I want to please God. That's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1. Do I please God or do I please men? And so uh, the fundamental principles that will please God, Daniel had those. He had those in his life, and I think we can see them in Scripture. People, people of all ages should, should read Daniel and and get those kind of principles for, for their choices and the, the decisions they make. But I especially think this is useful for singles and, I, and, uh, and I, young singles and teens and children because this man is single and he, uh, and he was young, especially in this chapter here, and we see just some special things about him in that age. People ask, you know, what should I focus on what should I focus on doing before I get married? Um, or when do I know that I'm ready for marriage? Or parents might be asking, what do I want to see developed in my children uh, for when that time comes? Well, I think there's a biblical model right here in the book of Daniel to answer a lot of those questions. When we look at Daniel, we see the kind of qualities that are worth copying. And it's a person, Daniel's a person worth marrying. Uh, But the key reason his life was such a great example is because he lived to please God and God alone, and that's the the bottom line. He had the right end end game. He kept the end game in his mind, in his heart. So let's look at the first principle in chapter 1. Let me bear that out, and then we'll look at the Scripture. Here's the first principle that I see. Number one, for us, is to develop a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. Develop a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. If we're in our single days, if we're in our teenage days, this is a perfect time to develop a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. I think we really need to hone that in. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. With, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels un, into the treasure house of his God, that is Nebuchadnezzar's God. So let me, uh, let me talk about this a little bit. Daniel knew the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The, the, that doctrine is, that teaching, that understanding of who God is, is that God is in control of all things. God is in control of all things. But more importantly, Daniel knew how it applied to his situation. There's a difference. It wasn't just a doctrine. It it was how he viewed life. So Daniel, I mean, really, for all uh, purposes here, he was a church kid. Uh, He was raised right. He was raised to be a God-fearing Jew. But he knew God and he understood God. But just because Daniel was raised to serve God doesn't mean he automatically was saved or automatically was going to go to heaven when he died. I love the statement that somebody has made. This is a very important statement. Uh, God has no grandchildren, only children. God has no grandchildren, only children. Everyone has to accept Jesus for themselves. Uh, this, this warning comes from a, 
a man, J.C. Ryle, he, uh, he, this is, and this is really good for all the young people like me who were raised in church. I asked the children, here's what he says, I asked the children of religious parents to mark well what I am saying. It is the highest privilege to be the child of a godly father and mother and to be brought up in the midst of many prayers. It is a blessed thing indeed to be taught the gospel from our earliest infancy and to hear of sin and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and holiness and heaven from the first moment we can remember anything. But oh, take heed that you do not remain barren and unfruitful in the sunshine of all these privileges. Beware lest your heart remains hard, impenitent, and worldly, notwithstanding the many advantages you enjoy. You cannot enter the kingdom of God on the credit of your parents' religion. You must eat the bread of life for yourself and have the witness of the Spirit in your own heart. You must have repentance of your own, faith of your own, and sanctification of your own. That's so good. Daniel was one of those guys who made God his own. How do we know that? Well, it's because it was proved by what he did when he was away from his family. And that's what we see right here in the first couple verses. He's already understanding this, and he's going to be away from his family. You can tell the reality of someone's faith when it is put to the test. Daniel was hauled off to Babylon to serve in the king's court. Uh, Babylon wasn't anywhere near a Christian culture. In fact, let me just set this up and remind us here that when it comes to evil... Babylon has no equal, no equal in Scripture or anywhere else. In Revelation chapter 18, uh, Babylon is the very personification of evil. Jesus used Babylon there to, as a representation of all that is evil in the world and all that is opposed to God in the world. This, if you want to understand what is evil, what, is it lo- what does evil look like in the world, God would say, well, the word I'm going to use at the end time is Babylon. Uh, So think of the worst place in your mind, and Babylon was more evil. At the time of Daniel, in in Babylon's prime, Babylon had a murderous and incredibly cruel king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would conquer a city, they would decimate everything and then try to completely eliminate that culture from ever existing. Uh, which is what they tried to do in Jerusalem. And in verse 2, you see they carried out the vessels and brought them from the, the house of God to their, their God. And that's what they would do. They would uh, take everything. It, uh, it had, Babylon had a satanic education system. And nothing in our public schools today is worse than what Daniel saw and what Daniel heard in his education. Babylon was full of gold and wealth and decadence. Sexual perverseness and wickedness of all kinds was rampant in Babylon. They're well known for that. The Bible actually contrasts Jerusalem and Babylon and kind of puts it on two opposite scales. This represents God's city and the devil's city, really. So if you think about it, this is now where Daniel is taken to. He's taken out of Jerusalem and he's taken to Babylon And he was taken against his will. He was ripped from his family. He was ripped from his way of life. His freedom was taken from him. And you couldn't, I don't think, get much worse than being kidnapped and put into forced servitude like Daniel was. And even castrated. I want to just put that out there. This guy, his whole future was taken away from him. But here's what I want to keep in mind. It wasn't 
this is so important right now. It wasn't his sin that led him to that. It wasn't his sin. In fact, he had done everything right, if you will. I mean, he had done the right things. He was one of those obedient guys. He was one of those guys that did what he was supposed to do. He went to church. You know, he, uh, he did what he was supposed to do. It was the national disobedience of Israel, of the king and the, his fellow citizens, Daniel's fellow citizens, but that was the problem here. Uh, that's why God allowed them to be taken. God had sent many warnings through prophets and all of that, and, and now at this point, that's, God was allowing this foreign king to come in and take over. So, but in, in the middle of all this, Daniel is trying to live right and follow God, but, and it would have been easy for him at this moment. Here I am thinking I'm being taken off, and I'm uh, not even for my own, anything I did. I've tried to do everything right. Now God's letting me get called away. It would have been easy for him to get angry with God at this point since he did nothing to deserve this kind of treatment. He had obeyed his parents, followed the rules, so why was he suffering? And he, at this moment, if you think about it, what he was doing was he was going to pay in his life for the sins of others. He was going to pay for someone else's sin. And this happens all of the time, all of the time. I think of the children and adults who deal with abuse in their own life. They deal with immoral parents. They deal with, you know, even drunk drivers and all that kind of stuff, et cetera, et cetera. People deal, and they have to pay for the sins of other people. But now I want to look at something. I want to look at verse 2, and I want us to see how, look at the perspective of Daniel. Daniel saw God in everything that happened. Verse 2, look what it says. He said, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And the Lord gave Daniel's writing this, and he says, I know who did this. I know who, the, who was behind all of this. I know how all of this fits together. I know it because God is the one who's in charge. He's the one who's in control, and he's allowing all of this to take place. He has something better. He knew that, it was, that this was God's discipline on his nation, nation of Israel, for their sin. With all that happened to him, still he saw that God was behind it, allowing it for a reason. And I think this really, if you think about it, undergirds the entire book of Daniel. It's his perspective, and it's the key to his whole life. I know that God is in control. He saw that God had an end game, and all he had to do was just fit into that end game and just trust the Lord and say, all right, if this is where you want me, God, then I'm going to thrive right here. I'm going to do my job right here. If this is where I'm supposed to be, if this kind of culture is what you're going to allow me to live in and be around, this is the kind of treatment I'm going to have, then okay, then I'm going to live in this one. I'm going to do the best I can here. Later in the book, Daniel even helps Nebuchadnezzar learn a powerful truth about the sovereignty of God, big time. Daniel chapter 4, verse 25, do you remember this verse? That uh, Nebuchadnezzar is dealing with all that happened to him, and he said, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, this is talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. He was going to be humbled. And seven times shall pass over thee. And listen to this last phrase. This is where the sovereignty, you see the sovereignty of God. Until thou know, Nebuchadnezzar, that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Till you understand, Nebuchadnezzar, this is all going to happen to you. you. You're in all your pride. You need to know, till, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Let's just put this in perspective, Nebuchadnezzar. God is the king. 
And so here's the question for all of us. Daniel knew that God was God over Babylon. God is bigger than Babylon. Do you trust that God is bigger than your oppressive Babylon? You you may not like your current family situation. You may not like your current job. You may be discontent with generally where you are in life and why things aren't happening like you thought they would happen and why the future is not unfolding like it should unfold and why things are the way they are. You might even be upset about the, really upset about the current political landscape, (laughs) politics and all this. But really, if you think about it, an understanding of God's sovereignty is the key to all of this. That is a great little story. It's a Chinese parable, actually, about a man who had one horse and one son. One day, the horse, out of control, wandered away with the boy on its back, and, and the boy and the horse were both lost. The man's neighbors came to console his father the next day, and they said, we're so sorry that you lost your horse and your son. It's so bad. But the man said, how do you know that it's bad? The next day, the horse and the boy wandered back home. Trailing behind him were uh, 13 wild horses that came right into the corral with him. The neighbors then came over and said, wow, this is amazing. Your boy is back, and now you also have 13 wild horses with him. That's so good. And the man replied, how do you know that it's good? And uh, the next day, the boy was trying to break one of the wild horses, and he was bucked off and broke his leg. His neighbors came over to him and said, man, we're so sorry. Your son broke his leg. That's so bad. The man said, how do you know that's bad? The next day, the warlord came to confiscate all the able-bodied young men for his war. But the man's son couldn't go because his leg was broken, and, and he couldn't go. And so that was good. <laughs> You know, I think we, we look at life circumstances so wrong most of the time. Uh, how do we know? How do we know if this is good? Or how do we know if this is bad? And that's why God's sovereignty is so great. We can just leave that up to Him. We can just kind of push that over to Him. So what is God's sovereignty? What does that mean? What is that doctrine? The sovereignty of God refers to the fact that God is in complete control of the universe. It's a belief that is distinct from another belief that's called fatalism, which denies that humans have any free will at all. That's not what we're saying. Humans are able to make genuine choices that have real consequences. Uh, But what we believe is God does not directly cause everything to happen, but He does allow all that happens to happen. But ultimately, God's will is going to be accomplished. So you say, Pastor Luke, I fell asleep on that definition. That was a little long. How does this, how does this whole thing, God's sovereignty, uh, help me on Monday? That's a good theological doctrine you were talking about, but what, what, what is it, how, how does it help me tomorrow? Let me just say there's a couple ways that the sovereignty of God impacts everyday life. One of them is that it re- removes all causes for worry, if you think about it. Why should I stress about any life situation if God is in control? Really, that just removes that cause for, for worry. The sovereignty also impacts everyday life in that I can trust that God is sanctifying me. See, what we can know every day is when we could wake up that is if I'll just submit to the Lord, He is going to make me more like Himself. He's going to grow me. 
I don't have to be so crazy about all these things and try all these little things. I just have to submit myself to whatever God tells me the next day, and, he's, and, and he is going to make me more like himself. The sovereignty of God also affects how we make decisions. Um, see, we don't, if we recognize we know God's in charge, we don't have to be paralyzed by decision-making. Uh, if we make a wrong decision, we don't have to worry we can trust that God's faithfulness and He has the ability to set us back on the right course. If we're following Him, if we're trusting Him, if we're going with uh, trying to stay in His will, God can bring us back on course. And also then God's sovereignty impacts who we are, our sense of identity. We, we understand how powerful God is and how much He loves us. Then uh, we know then that we are secure in Jesus. He's powerful. He loves us. I'm secure. I know, who I, I know who holds me. So I, I think that God wants us to settle this in our heart when we're young. I, I, the, the earlier we can get this, the better. There's something that we should teach in the home, I think, informally and formally. It's that God is sovereign. God is in control. We, 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 in fact, when you think about it, we're probably referring to this kind of thing several times a day in different ways. God's in control of that. God's in control. We can trust God for that. God loves us. God takes care of us. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? God's, God's going to watch over us. I'm scared tonight. I'm scared in my bed. God's going to watch over us. He won't let anything happen to us that he doesn't have his watchful eye over us. See, when, you, when we really get the sovereignty of God, it changes everything. It just it totally uh, gives us the right perspective on life. You know, I remember a childhood lesson about God's sovereignty real quick. I, I had one day I was out riding my bike and as a kid, and I came across these uh, other kids that were out in the neighborhood, and they knew who I was. I lived at that house down there. My dad was a pastor of a church, and so they just thought it would be fun for some reason to start calling me preacher's kid. Preacher's kid, preacher's kid, preacher's kid, you know, this kid stuff. Preacher's kid, preacher's kid, preacher's kid, and uh, man, I got so offended by that. I was, I, I was, you know, turned tail on my bike and rode home all upset and and rushed in and uh, told my mom, I said, Mom, these kids are out there. They called me uh, preacher's kid, preacher's kid, preacher's kid. And then my mom, it's such a wise answer, she said, well, you are. <laughs> and what's wrong with that? And that was a moment for me. Oh, God's in control. He put me in this. That's my unchangeable in life. I don't have a choice on that. Let's just accept that. Let's just accept that that's who I am, and why does it matter anyway? Whether I'm a child or a teen or an adult, this lesson on God's sovereignty is absolutely crucial. It has to go deep down into our hearts, not just a doctrinal truth in our minds. The earlier we settle that God is sovereign in my heart, the better our life is because a day comes when you will need it, I think about our time when we got married and, and God gave us a test right out the gate with a precious little baby that went home to be with Jesus. The, the sovereignty is God, of God is what carried us at that moment. It really, really did. I know God's in control. I know God is strong. I know God loves us. And we're going to continue on. So are we a, if you're a young adult, learn this lesson early. If you're a parent, teach this lesson early. And by the way, just to throw in here, I think, it's, I think learning Bible stories, is, that's why I think it's so important to just know as many Bible stories as we possibly can in the Bible, 
because I think it's the biblical accounts, these true accounts of how God worked in people's life that reveal that aspect of God, that sovereign aspect, and how it works in real, in real life. He's always got a plan for people, and you see that as it plays out in these lives in Scripture. So there is number one. Number two, and another, this is another thing we learn from Daniel, is to develop the skills and abilities that are already in you. For a young single adult uh, or a teenager, uh, we, learn to, we need to learn to develop the skills and abilities that God has already put in us. Verse 3, And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. Uh, this is these children of Israel that were brought in to serve the king. This foreign king, Babylon, is now bringing these, these kids that seem, these young people that had special skill and special wisdom. If you, so if you think about it, if you then trace that back, if Daniel is at that point in his life when they're taken over, he has all this skill, he has all this wisdom, he has this knowledge, he understands science. Uh, he he was, had that ability to stand in the king's presence and had that poise. Dan, if you think about that, Daniel obviously had spent a long time on his earthly education, even back in Jerusalem. He had bettered himself, if you will. He had developed learning skills, how to learn well. He had developed communication skills. He had developed above-average etiquette. He developed abilities that were already in him. Notice what that verse says. They, they had the ability in them. Ambition, just let's just, let's just keep this in mind, ambition and skill development is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. As long as godly character and relationship with Jesus grows right along with our skills. It's good to give our effort to wholesome, practical things that will increase our life. Think about Colossians 3.23. It says this in the New Testament. Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily. He was talking about work here in our regular work life. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men. And if you think about it, even Jesus increased in practical things as a young person, at home and outside the home. Look what Luke chapter 2 says, and he went down with them, that's it, that is his parents, and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart, in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and favor with man. So Jesus went with Joseph and Mary to Nazareth and worked on these things at home. At home. He went with them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth. He worked on those things at home. Let me remind our young ones here. You, we need to practice. You need to practice skill development in your home first. Home is the rehearsal for real life. Uh, you know, uh, as kids, sometimes... Kids sometimes tend to give their best of their life and the best to, uh, of themselves to others instead of where they're really needed, right, in their home. They're really needed with their siblings. They're really needed uh, to be servants. To re they're really needed in their homes. So no matter our age, we are needed in our homes 
to have this kind of mentality. For Daniel, I'm sure he was learning lots of those skills in the home. And when it came time, now he was ready to stand before kings. He was ready to stand before kings because of what he had learned and what he had practiced and what he had developed in his life. Here's what I want to remind us tonight. The world needs godly and gifted business people in every sector who can live with integrity and lead others to Jesus. In fact, one of the latest trends in mission work that I keep hearing and reading about is that a lot of people are using business to gain access into foreign lands. See, doors open in countries for business people often earlier and more than, uh, than for missionaries. So these business people will go there, and really their whole life, their, their whole goal is to win people to Christ. You know, even locally, we can be business people missionaries. Uh, I was we were talking, about our, uh, talking with our speaker that came yesterday, Debbie Pride, who spoke to the ladies, and we're talking about her life and getting a history of her life. I know she was talking about her husband down in Southern California, her husband was an executive at an aerospace company, but a brilliant man and uh, just, and, uh, just a, a great businessman. But then he really, she really was unfolding what he was like at home and then at church. He was a bus driver. He was, in fact, it, that's uh, some of the connection there. Back way back when, he and my dad worked on staff together at a church in Southern California in the bus ministry. So this aerospace executive drives a bus on Sunday. He's a, he was a bus captain. He was a children's teacher. He was a youth teacher. He, later, he was a Bible college teacher. He did all kinds of things. When he retired, he did even more. He just served in every way he could. That's the kind of business people that we need. Uh, recently, actually, just this week, past week, a man in Lodi was telling me that he has his own insurance company and and he, he said, in my insurance company, I, have my, I always have my Bible right there on my desk. I, I put a big Bible right there. And every time I'm talking with people, I'll just, if it comes, if any time they ask or if it gives a moment that I can say something, I'll always try to bring in God's Word. And he even, he said, recently I led a young man to the Lord right there in my office. I mean, there's just, there's just so many things in being a business person for Jesus. The access to people is Unbelievable. I always think, when I think of this, I always think of Chuck Colson's story. It, for Chuck Colson, it was, a, it was a successful businessman, Tom Phillips, who was always at peace, he said. I would always go and uh, see this man. He's, he had a growing, huge business, but I would sit in his office and this peace would be on him. And I would talk to him, and he would always talk to me about Jesus. And so one day, he finally went to his house when, when Chuck really needed that peace. He was at, his, at the end of his rope. And uh, this man said, you know, uh, Chuck, your problem is pride, and you need to get rid of that. Why don't you give your life to Jesus? And he said, I would not do it right there. He said, but I, I got in my car. I got the book that he gave me. I got out in my car, and I started to drive away, and then I pulled over to the car. And all of a sudden, everything just came crashing down. I began to cry, and, and he said, that's the moment. I just said, I cried out, and here's where his words. He said, I, then I prayed my first real prayer. God, I don't know how I would find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I don't know how to say it more, so I repeated over and over those words. He said, take me, take me, Jesus. So this is the kind of people that can rub off on a person like that in a high position. You know, even in the Bible, you don't see too many full-time Christian ministers. You don't see too many of them. You see godly business people and people in politics like Daniel. Daniel. 
like Daniel. So I want to just encourage uh, everybody and our young adults to keep on gaining the skills that will make you stand out in, in an earthly job and make sure to do even better, though, at your heavenly job. And then lastly, tonight, number three, that I think we see right here from Daniel's life. Develop a resistance to the world's pressures. Develop a resistance to the world's pressures. Number, verse four, and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. That's what they wanted to do with Daniel and his friends. Verse five, and the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat. And of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. The Babylonians were well known for being experts at erasing everything you used to think and assimilating you into their culture. The Greeks and the Romans, they came along later, and actually when they would conquer a place, uh, they would let those conquered peoples uh, maintain their cultural identity and, and their religion, and really they would just require them to pay taxes, but you can keep your cultural identity, that's fine. The Babylonians were not like that at all. They wanted to rid you of everything you ever knew or ever believed. Uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted the smarts of Daniel. He wanted the brilliance, the wisdom of Daniel, but he didn't want all the God stuff. So Nebuchadnezzar, here's what he does according to these verses. He puts Daniel on a three-year plan, a three-year plan to change him and his friends. Here's what his, the plan consisted of. Learning, it says. So that would be education, education in Babylon, polytheistic, spiritualistic, demonic arts. Imagine what they were telling him about how the world started. Imagine what they were telling him about what's, uh, what's really going on in the world or history and all this. Then it says the tongue, their language. They would, he would want to speak, he would want to, they would want to change their language. And then even food and drink, it says. And that to us obviously shows that that represents the world's delicacies. They wanted, they wanted to completely immerse uh, these young Jerusalem guys in the, this new culture. And this was three-year pressure was meant to break you of all your old thinking. It reminds me of some colleges today universities. In many cases, it's a well-planned strategy, actually, a very well-planned strategy on uneducating people from Christian roots. The, the, the pressure of the culture is intense, and we know this, and I don't need to hound this too long, but I just want to say that many Christians, and it's sad, many Christians are caving. The devil is like Nebuchadnezzar, and you can see Babylon in the culture. The devil wants to assimilate us into the thinking of what everybody else is thinking, he wants to assimilate in the world's philosophies and the world's system. He, he uses education and entertainment to teach. He uses the language. He gets us, if you think about it, one of the ways he uses language, he, uses, he gets us to be nervous 
He gets us as Christians to get scared to use certain words in the culture. He's trying to scare us into not using those term, that terminology. He wants to change our language. He definitely uses the delicacies of the world, like the food and the drink of Babylon. He's going to use all those little tasty treats out there to try to lure us into thinking that this is going to be better. The Babylonians, though I want you to notice here, especially like to change people's names. This was a huge way to try to change a person's identity. I'm going to confuse your identity by giving you a brand new name and we'll never use your old name again. Notice the name changes for Daniel and his friends. Think about this. Daniel, which means God is my judge. His name is changed to Belteshazzar, which means lady, protect the king. Lady, protect the king. So look what they did to Daniel. They even changed the gender of his name. They also shifted the focus from God to human. They he went from a man that was held accountable by God, that's the, what his name used to mean, to a woman who must protect her king. Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh, has been gracious. His name, the new name was Shadrach, which is, I am fearful of God. I'm fearful of God. Uh, Mishael, who can compare to my God is the meaning of that name. That was his first name, and then Meshach, the name they gave him is, I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. Azariah, his name meant Yahweh has helped. Abednego meant the servant of Nebo, which was a false god. They, he absolutely wanted to completely confuse their names, their identity, who they were. He wanted to just twist that all up to get their thinking all out of whack. And we still see the enemy trying to confuse people and cast confusion on God-designed identities today. He wants to redefine gender, gender relationships, and marriage even. We know that. We live in a time where the devil is going to keep trying to confuse the issue and blur the line between boys and girls and blur the line between right and wrong. Uh, But here, listen, the world can't define people's identity. They cannot. They're unable to because only God can do that. He's the creator. And only God can define define me. Only God could tell me who I am. Nobody else can tell me who I am. Daniel wasn't about to be swayed by this popular opinion out there or the pressure of the education system or the culture that was around him or all the delicacies, he was not going to be swayed. He was not going to let someone steal the truth out of his heart. He had this, he had this wall built around that. How did he keep such a strong resistance? Well, I believe the clue that we see later in his life is where we see how he kept that so strong. Remember, later in his life, he, uh, they told him if, if any, they made a ridiculous law that if anybody prays to anybody else other than the king, you're going to be thrown into the lion's den. But what did Daniel do? That didn't stop anything in his life. He still had this strong sense that nothing can stop me. So here's what he did. He prayed. He got alone with God like he would do every single day, three times a day. I really think it was Daniel's daily closeness to God that kept him able to withstand the fiery darts of the wicked. It was his closeness to the truth. It was his closeness to God. It was his relationship with God. 
So really, if we think about it, the greatest way to fight off the devil's attacks is to stay close in our relationship to Jesus. You know, Romans 12, it says that very thing, really. Romans 12, 2, it says, and be not conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Be not conformed, but transformed. You know, some people are conformers and some people are transformers. Some conform to everything that's around them. And others are transformed because they're the ones that aren't affected by that stuff. Their minds are with Jesus. Their minds are in Jesus every single day. Every single day. Day after day, they wake up, and here's the question that they ask. And this is how I think renewing of our minds really, the, the, the underlying question that we're really just going to God every day with as we open our Bibles and, and pray. We're saying, God, what is true today? What is true today? And that is how our mind stays renewed. God, what is true? And I'm going to open your word. What is true? What is true? And so we have to think, which one am I? Am I a conformer or am I a transformer? Every little godly discipline that we place in our life to keep us close to Jesus gives us a nice strong resistance to the pressures that are coming uh, against us every, on every side. I end with this, Jonathan Edwards, the, the uh, 18th century revivalist and preacher, he sat down at age 17, 17 years old, and he started to write resolutions for his life that he was going to live by. And he had 21 resolutions at that time, and throughout his life, he would just keep adding to the list. So 17, he had 21. By the end of this list, he has 70. They're amazing resolutions. But at the, at the top of the list, he put this. He said, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. Uh, Edwards was not one of those, Jonathan Edwards was not one of those kind of guys that played church. He was not one of those kind of guys that took this lightly. He, those are some amazing, amazing resolutions. He sat down each week and did a self-check and to sum up, how am I doing? How am I doing on these things? And that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of person that is not conformed. The world can't affect a person like that. They are transformed by the renewing of their mind. And they're transformed to become more and more like Christ every single day. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you, everybody, for listening here tonight. And-